Would you rise with me as you're able, and we'll affirm together our confidence in God's Word before we get into our text in Ephesians. So let's say it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Would you please remain standing as I read our passage from Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, which is on page 979 in your Bibles, if you want to follow along, 979 in the Black Pew Bible. And this is Ephesians 6, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible at home, please grab one of ours, take it home. We would love for you to have your own copy at home. So let me read God's Word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. This is God's Word. You may be seated. We begin a new series today. And like last year during Lent, we return to a military theme. During the next six weeks, we'll be looking at the description of the armor of God, and we'll take one piece at a time. Per Sunday, there are six. So it works perfectly for Lent, and uh, we will consider the belt of truth this morning. Now, before I get into the belt of truth specifically, let me uh, make some introductory observations about this passage, okay? Let's just set the context, make sure we know where this is going. Number one, we are engaged in a cosmic conflict. We're engaged in a cosmic conflict. Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in verse 11, we're called to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we're caught in a war between God and the spiritual forces of evil that are led by Satan or the devil, the powerful angelic being who leads the rebellion. And so we can't look at our lives simply in terms of flesh and blood. That's part of it, but it's not enough to explain what we're dealing with. So we need to look at our lives and look beyond flesh and blood. So we need to look beyond purely human problems and circumstances. There's something much bigger going on. One commentator puts it this way, The Christian life as a whole is a profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions in which the ultimate opposition to the advance of the gospel 
and moral integrity springs from evil supernatural powers under the control of the God of this world. So that's the reality. We're part of a cosmic conflict. Number two, our fighting is very close and personal. So even though we're talking about these principalities and authorities and rulers and these, these really big and powerful forces and, and creatures, however, our experience of that fighting is very close and personal. So notice the word wrestle in verse 12. That's actually a very good translation of that word. It means wrestling like athletic, like sports, wrestling kind of stuff. It's close. You're, you're hand-to-hand in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. We're not, we're not called to see this cosmic conflict as, as something that's outside of our lives. It's very close and personal. Number three, God equips us for this fight. God equips us for this fight. Notice the passive tone of this passage. We are not called to look for the enemy. We're not called to win battles for God. We are called to stand against the enemy's attacks. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, in verse 10. Our strength comes from God himself. In fact, we are given his own armor to wear in this conflict. There's a lot of uh, allusions to Isaiah um, that describes, Isaiah describes God as a warrior or the Messiah as a warrior, somebody who comes and puts on armor to fight for us. For example, in Isaiah 59, verse 17, this is what is, is said about God. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So God's own armor is meant to protect us and prevent the devil from causing damage and gaining ground. This is very important. We're not manufacturing armor. We're not looking for things to put on. God gives it to us. So the call is to use what God gives us as he takes off the armor off of himself and puts it on us. Number four, God has already won the war. God has already won the war. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul describes all that Christ has accomplished for us. Look at Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. It says that God's great power worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we read early on in Ephesians that Christ is already seated in the heavenly places. He's already conquered the principalities and dominions and rulers. They've been defeated on the cross and in the empty tomb. Jesus claims, already has claimed a decisive victory over the spiritual forces of evil. The devil is still attacking God's people, but his fate has already been sealed. So we are in a situation where the war is won, but the battles are still happening. At the end of every major conflict in world history, there is that time when everybody knows who has won the war. Everybody knows how it's going to end. But the enemy is persisting, and people still get hurt, and lots of things still happens until that final victory is accomplished and proclaimed. 
And number five, my last point as an introduction, I won't take as much time uh, on the rest of it. Number five, the armor we are given by God consists of various aspects of the gospel. This armor consists of various aspects of the good news of God's ultimate victory in Christ. As we go through each piece of armor, you will see how they all connect very specifically to the accomplishments of Jesus on our behalf. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the armor consists of an understanding and application of the truth of the gospel. So each piece is going to remind us of something particular about the gospel, and we can apply it in a specific way to our struggle. Okay, those are my introductory remarks. I needed to set some context. Now let's get into our, our first piece of armor, the belt of truth. I'd like to first uh, look at what it is, then what it does, and finally what it looks like for us to wear it. So what it is, what it does, and what it looks like to wear it. What it is. Okay, we need to understand the imagery here. Again, for a modern person, this is a, a foreign idea. In ancient times, people wore free-flowing clothing. You've seen pictures, right? They're robes. They're just kind of over your body. And so often in Scripture, you hear this phrase, you know, gird up your loins, or gather your, your clothing is what's meant here. Because you can't do a whole lot. You can't really do anything vigorously. You certainly can't fight if your clothes are just all over. And so they're being girded, they're being gathered by a belt, especially for a soldier. So in ancient literature, when it's said that a soldier has buckled his belt or fastened on his belt, it means that he is ready for battle. So he's, he's now free to move. Range of movement is, is, is wide. He's able to engage. He's got his hands free. He doesn't have to hold up his robes anymore. And so he's ready to engage in battle. On the other hand, when it's said that a soldier has unbuckled his belt or loosened his belt or even took off his belt, that means that he has given up on fighting or he has surrendered himself to the enemy. And so the reason the belt of truth is mentioned here first in this list of the pieces of armor and weapons is because it has a foundational function. Unless the belt is in place, we can't use other weapons. You see, you have, you have to be girded up. You have to be ready. You have to be in the right shape to fight. And so the belt serves that purpose. In fact, it connects to the breastplate. In fact, you have a sword that's put on attached to your belt. So unless the belt is in place, unless it's tight, unless it does what it's supposed to do, all other weapons will be much harder to use. So our readiness to stand against the spiritual forces of evil must begin with fastening on the belt of truth. That's the imagery. Very clear, I think, for an ancient person, and could be pretty clear for us if we simply understand what they did with it. But what truth does Paul mean here? Usually when you read commentaries, some people would say, well, this is objective truth, something that God reveals to us in Scripture. Others would say, well, this is more truthfulness. This is more about being a man of integrity, being a person that is honest in their dealings, something that's a person who's sincere. I think this word allows for both meanings to be put together. And I'll try to show that to you. I think there's an objective truth that's, that's mean, meant here, but also 
a subjective grasp on that truth. So objectively, we are to believe in God's revealed truth. We need to understand reality based on God's revelation. How do you know what's real? How do you know what's true? How do you know what's right? How do you know what's good? And maybe in certain times of human history, you would say, well, that's obvious. Everybody believes it. Everybody knows what's true. Everybody knows what's right. Yeah, we had those short seasons where maybe that was true by and large. Certainly not true today. Which voices do you listen to? What opinions do you trust? How do you know what is true? Well, God does not leave us in our confusion, but He reveals truth to us. Everything necessary for our our understanding of reality is revealed to us in the Scriptures. We have been given objective truth, which we can fasten on as a belt and be ready for battle. What chance do we have unless we know the truth as revealed by God Himself? Now listen to uh, one preacher who says, without truth, without the doctrines, without the knowledge of who God is, who we are, who we have become in Christ, and what we have been called to do, precisely the kind of things Paul has been teaching in the earlier chapters of Ephesians. Without this, we really do not know what kind of activity in which to engage, and we will be vulnerable to Satan's onslaughts and wiles. Now, if we don't know what's true, how can you discern a lie? How do you know what direction you should be going? How do you know who you should be fighting? You see, there's a foundational function to this belt. You have to know what's true to to start even figuring out anything else in life. Now, I think it's perfectly fine to speak of the whole revelation of God in Scripture as this truth. We need to know all of the Bible. However, we need to focus on specific, something more specific here. In Ephesians 1.13, earlier in the same epistle, Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes, In him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, and then he explains what the word of truth is, he says, the gospel of your salvation. So truth in that passage is the gospel of your salvation. You see, there's a culmination of God's revelation. There is a revelation of truth that comes in a person and in works of that person. And the culmination, the, the truth personified, the truth clearly revealed to us as, a, as an essence of what Scripture is about is the gospel, is the good news of what Jesus has done for us and who he is. So his life, his death, his resurrection is the truth that we are to fasten on as a belt. It is the message of what Jesus has accomplished for us. It is the proclamation that in his life, Jesus has fulfilled all our obligations before God on our behalf. That in his death, Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sins in our place. That in his resurrection, Jesus has acquired a new life for us. 
and that all of that, all those benefits are given to us by grace. This is what the Bible is about. This is the the essence of God's revelation. Yes, there's lots of things about the Bible, and they all fit together, and all of that is true, but that all leads to seeing Christ in it. And so for us, to understand the Bible correctly, we need the lens of the gospel. Now, I mentioned that all the pieces of the armor are aspects of the gospel, and so here we see the belt of truth is the understanding of reality based on the gospel as revealed in Scripture. The gospel literally is how we see everything, and I mean literally everything. I'm not just talking about how we view religious matters. I'm talking about everything. This truth, this belt of truth has to wrap around everything in our lives. And so the gospel has to become a lens through which we see absolutely everything in our lives, inside and out, in relationships, everywhere. The gospel gives us the right view of work or rest or family or possessions and money sexuality, beauty, politics, culture, all sorts of social issues, gardening, food and sleep, Netflix and Walmart and Amazon. Yes, the gospel also applies to all of that. War, weather, colors and shapes, Sounds and clothing, pencils and chocolate chips and shoelaces, and love and retirement and exercise, I I do mean absolutely everything. Because if you fasten on that belt of truth, that belt of the gospel, the truth that proclaims that God has sent a Savior into your sinful, sorry condition, and He's rescued us through His life, death, and resurrection... That is who you are now. Now you know who God is. Now you know what you are required to do and how you're required to live and feel and plan and love. Everything is on the table. Of course it is. And so the gospel becomes that lens through which Scripture is read, through which reality is perceived. Now here we need to get to the other aspect of truth, the subjective aspect. The objective is this is what God did in Christ. This is what Scripture says. That's objective. The subjective is that it's not just a set of beliefs about reality to be somewhere out there. Truth has to be appropriated. It has to be held with sincerity. Christians are to be truthful people, and by that I mean full of truth, Our whole lives need to be penetrated by that truth. It has to affect us to the deepest level. So when we say that I have fastened on the truth as a belt, what we mean is not only that I believe I assent to these ideas, that God is the way He is, that Christ is the way He is, that I am the way I am, that I just assent to these ideas. No. What we mean is that these ideas have become my ideas. Now, this has become my worldview. 
It's not just the Bible. It's not just the church. It's not just God. But it's now me. And so I think truth here in this passage means objective truth sincerely held. Objective truth. We can't change that. But appropriated by us, sincerely held, truthfully, honestly held with integrity in our own lives. We ought to honestly embrace the truth of the gospel as it is revealed objectively in the scriptures. So then the gospel worldview, it's not just a set of beliefs, but it's a lived-in worldview. It's applied. It's lived out. It is a heartfelt truth. It has captured our imagination and inspired songs and poems. It stirs and shapes our desire, and it sends us on a quest. It has recovered our sense of wonder. This is how deep this truth, this worldview has to get. This truth is in our bones. It is stored in our muscle memory. It becomes a gut feeling, a default feeling. This truth is on the tip of our tongues and in the back of our minds. It is the internal logic of our lives. This truth, this worldview, this gospel sets our schedules and it fills our calendars. It molds our ambitions and it sets our direction. This is the kind of truth that we have. It's objective truth sincerely held. Does it describe your life? Does it describe my life? How I fastened on the belt of truth, where it's become not just a set of beliefs. It has to be that, of course. It's objective. But it's penetrated me. It's, I'm, I'm soaking in that. I'm swimming in that. Sometimes I don't even realize that this is how I operate because it's become so part of me. That's the kind of worldview of truth that Scripture describes. Scripture never actually really separates these ideas of mind and body and heart. It's all together. We're a complete person. We're a whole person with these parts, with these, these aspects of personality, but the gospel brings all of it together. And so all these different pieces are to be engaged. We are to be thinkers, absolutely. We need to rationally approach the book. But we also need to feel the book. You see, when you read it, 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 has, to, it has to move you. I love using the word moving. This passage is moving. This song is moving. It, it, it takes me somewhere. Maybe even quite apart from what I understand. But it, it messes with my heart. It has to move us not only emotionally, but also move us into action. Our lives need to be in accordance with his word, in accordance with the gospel. That's the idea. And if I'm living that way, what can the devil do to me? If the truth has become so part of me, my belt is fastened so tightly that I can discern his lies. Now let's talk about that a little bit. What does it do? What does this belt do in relation to the attacks of the devil? Now remember in, in, uh, earlier in the passage, we're called, exhorted to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we put on the armor so that we're able to stand against the schemes 
of the devil. Again, scheme is just a perfect word, I think, for what the devil does. There's a sense in which it's subversive, it's deceptive. And of course, we know that the devil deals in deception, trickery, and lies. The commentator says, mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Now listen to this. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. This is how our enemy works. This is why this battle that is with cosmic powers, it's so close. You're battling face to face right here. You're battling within your heart because the devil works through lies and deceptions. This is how he influences us. Jesus said in John 8 about the devil that there's no truth in him. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. We need truth to protect us from the devil's lies. Do you remember the first interaction of the devil with humanity as recorded in Scripture in Genesis 3? He comes to Eve first and then to Adam. What does he say? He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say that? What, what's the strategy here? Deception, trickery. Let's see if they remember what God said. Let's see if they can discern my lie. Let's see if they can twist God's word and make my temptation into something legitimate and desirable and attractive. This is how the devil works. He puts lies into our hearts. And if we don't have truth, how can we defend ourselves? How can we even know that this is, in fact, a lie? There's a lot of scams out there in the world, and some of us have fallen prey to email or phone scams. It's sometimes very difficult to know what's true. For example, if there's a scam that especially around this time, somebody calls you, it sounds like they're from the IRS, and they have just discovered very unexpectedly to you that you owe a lot of money and these fines have to be paid today and you can do it over the phone. You can just pay that through your credit card or your bank account number and, and they will take care of everything and you'll be fine after that phone call. It's a scam, right? We know that it's a scam because there's a truth that we need to remember. The truth is that the IRS doesn't call you they don't call you. They will not make ever an unsolicited phone call to you. They prefer mail. They prefer paper. They like a paper trail in your life. When you get a letter, that's different. Pay attention to that. <laughs> when you get a phone call, this is not from the IRS. Even if your, your phone ID says it's a DC number, this is not from the IRS. If you know the truth, and this is how you deal with scams and all these schemes that people try to take advantage of us. You need to know the truth. If you know that the IRS doesn't call you, it doesn't matter what they say, 
in that call. It doesn't matter what message they leave. It doesn't matter how upset and caring they are for you and how, how much they want to help you. It doesn't matter. Because you know the truth, and now you can simply reject that lie, and you see it for what it is. Now, we live in a culture where this belt of truth, this idea of objective truth, this, this sincere holding on to the objective truth is becoming more and more rare. In fact, some observers describe our culture as a post-truth culture, post-truth culture. What is even more alarming is that a large portion of the church can be described as a post-truth church. Many Christians today have a gospel worldview that is weak. Some have lost it at all, altogether. Many have lost their grip on God's revealed truth. I think the spiritual decline of the church in the West can be explained at least in part by the gradual loosening of the belt of truth. And so we find ourselves today, forgive the very vivid imagery, standing with our pants around our ankles, unable to respond to the devil's attacks. That is, in many ways, the state of the church. How do we deal with that? If the culture has given up on the truth, and if the church seems to be given up on the truth, what do we do? In our culture, we have seen a rather dramatic shift from truth and truthfulness. Carl Truman, one of the Christian writers, describes this shift in terms of the rise of the psychological self. The rise of the psychological self. I think this one sentence pretty much sums up the dominant view in our culture today. He says, the psychological self, the notion that we are who we feel we are, and that the purpose of life is inward psychological contentment or satisfaction, renders identity a highly plastic, malleable thing, detached from any authority greater than personal conviction. I'll, I'll read that again. The psychological self, the notion that we are who we feel we are, and that the purpose of life is inward, psychological contentment or satisfaction, renders identity a highly plastic, malleable thing, detached from any authority greater than personal conviction. This is the prevalent view in our culture today. Believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whatever the church thinks about it, this is what it is. This is what it is in our culture. There are no defenses set up against the devil's schemes. So what about the church? Well, a huge issue that we are seeing in the church is the decline in biblical literacy. Many Christians simply don't know what the Bible says. They just, they just don't know. They have not read the Bible. They have not heard the Bible read. They have not heard the Bible preached very much. And so they just don't know what it says. Some may put their belts on at church once or twice a month, but they seem to leave them there. Some churches have special rooms that are set up that you can just hang up your belt of truth there when you go home. Take your coat, leave your belt. And so we go home without any guidance from God's Word. We go to work without any guidance from God's Word. And then we come to church the next month, we get our belt, we try to put it on, we realize it doesn't quite fit anymore. 
But instead of getting in shape, we simply leave the church altogether. This is a common story. This is a common story. Listen to Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher who talks about Bible literacy quite a bit. She says, Bible literacy matters because it protects us from falling into error. Both the false teacher and the secular humanist rely on biblical ignorance for their messages to take root. And the modern church has proven fertile ground for those messages. Because we do not know our Bibles, we crumble at the most basic challenges to our worldview. Disillusionment and apathy eat away at our ranks. This is why truth matters. Because if you don't know what's true, you can't tell what's not true. And so when an assault comes, when something, a thought comes into your head, how do you evaluate it? How do you know if it's true? How do you know if it's good? How do you know if it's worth entertaining and worth pursuing? You have to compare it to something. What is your standard of truth? Is it your personal conviction? Is it how you feel? Is it your own constructed identity? Or is it God's word? And specifically the gospel of Jesus. Only by fastening on the belt of truth can we stand against the devil's schemes. And now, briefly, let me finish by talking more practically about what it looks like to be wearing this belt, to fasten on this belt of truth. I have three application points. So number one, look at your waist and see if the belt you have on is the right belt, first of all. You may think it's the belt of truth, but maybe it isn't. Ask yourself, is it the gospel that defines my understanding of reality, or is it something else? What I'm getting at is, I'm talking about people like us, Christians who are at church, who are maybe here in the Bible, but the Bible isn't foundational. The gospel isn't foundational. There are other things that are much more foundational for them. They're much more basic. They're much more influential in their lives. Let me give you two examples. Politics and sexual identity. Politics and sexual identity. These are, by the way, things we are talking about in Sunday school this month. We just talked about politics. Kevin Hardman led a discussion on politics this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about race, which is another big issue in our community and in the church. And then the following week, we'll be talking about sexual ethics and the Christian response to the contemporary issues with that. There are Christians who feel that they have more in common with someone who shares their political views than with a brother or sister in Christ. I want to be gentle, but I want to be honest and forward here. If you find yourself agreeing with Mormons, agnostics, Jewish believers, universalists online, because they support your political ideology, but you end up arguing with gospel-centered Christians because they do not support your political ideology, let me suggest that maybe the belt that is around your waist is not the gospel. Maybe what's really foundational in your life is a political ideology. I'm not picking any particular ideology. I'm saying that it could happen and it does happen. One morning you can wake up and realize, you know what? 
I say I'm a Christian, but that's not the most fundamental of my identities. There's something deeper here, which is why I feel that it's so easier, much easier for me to connect with people who agree with me on politics than Christians in the church. That's a test. Pay attention to this. Which kingdom are you fighting for? Which manifesto have you subscribed to? And then, of course, there are Christians who see reality through the lens of their sexual orientation. It's really disturbing to see otherwise seemingly biblical evangelical churches today change their view on sexual ethics. Maybe their belt is not the gospel after all. So many deconversion stories, and this is sort of a popular thing online today, is deconversion stories. It seems like every former Christian wants to tell us in great detail why they don't like us anymore and don't trust us and don't trust the Bible. But as they explain why they have loved the faith, some of them, of course, are very high-profile people that these things become very public and go viral. There's many other Christians who are not as public but are experiencing the same things. But it is interesting to me that so many of these deconversion stories have to do with former Christians' rejection of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Sexual ethics is at the heart of these rejections of the gospel. Is your belt the belt of gospel truth? And everything else, politics and sexuality, are attached to it. Those are the things you're attaching to the belt of the gospel. They need to be attached, of course. You need the right view of sexuality. You need the right view of politics. But they are being attached to the gospel. However, sometimes it happens that we attach the gospel to politics or to sexuality. And it doesn't work. The gospel doesn't attach itself to other things. It's at the center. It's foundational. It has to be or it doesn't work. So my first point of application is consider whether the belt you have on, the belt of truth you have on, is the right belt, whether it is the gospel. Secondly, put on the belt of truth. Some of you have never accepted the gospel. Maybe you've been at church. Maybe you have lots of Christian relatives. But have you really accepted the gospel as your truth? And if you are in that boat, let, let me just ask this. Aren't you just tired of being tossed around by all the opinions? Aren't you just sick of all the confusion and chaos in your life? Come to the truth. Come to Jesus. Just see him as he is. He's a good savior. He's not trying to mess up your life. He's trying to make it better. And so as you look at your life and you see the chaos and the confusion and all the voices that are coming at you and saying, this is right and this is right and don't do that and do that, just leave it all and run to him and say, Jesus, I just want to listen to you. Tell me what's true. Give me the belt of truth. Save me from my confusion. Do that. Go to him by faith and just embrace him I am absolutely sure that you will never regret that. He is so much better than anything else. And he has given himself freely to you. He's coming to you and he's saying, 
what else can I do for you? I would give my life for you. And he did. He gave his life for you. So he can teach you, so he can love you, so he can care for you. So you can know what truth really is. Come to him by faith. I, I pray that it happens today with you. That you don't wait, that you don't waste time without Jesus. Some Christians who come to Christ later in life, there's an inevitable regret. Augustine prayed in, in, in his famous book, Confessions. He says, how late have I loved you? He felt like he just missed out. And he came to Christ in his 30s. But he felt like he missed out on 30 years of Jesus in his life. Don't wait. Go to him now. Embrace him by faith and learn the truth. And then finally, I'll speak to the believers who have been walking with Christ now, some of us for many years. I ask you to tighten your belt of truth. Fasten it on, tighten it, make it fit you well. Gird up your loins, pull everything in, do everything in the way that it's, it's right, that you're ready for action. And how do you do that? You read the Bible. You learn the gospel. You understand the doctrines. And you let the gospel transform you. I know all of us are struggling in our spiritual walks. Everybody is. There's nobody here that's saying, I've got everything addressed, everything is going great. None of us are like that. Because we're broken, sinful people, and God is working with us, and we're trying, and the Holy Spirit gives grace. But maybe in your life right now, and maybe during the season of Lent, you have recognized that you have not been interacting with God's Word. It's not part of your normal day. You don't get up and you open your scriptures and you wait to hear from God. When you have an issue in your life, you don't go to the scriptures to try to figure out what truth is and how to address it. You're not a person who's trying to correlate different passages. You're trying to figure out what does this doctrine, what does this biblical doctrine mean? How do I put it together? How, how does substitution work on the cross? What is imputed righteousness? What is justification? These are biblical words. How does God sanctify me and make me holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? Maybe you're not a person who's asking those questions. So I'm encouraging you today, as a brother to brother, brother to sister, as a fellow Christian, I'm encouraging you to get into the Word. Make it part of your life. Let it transform you. And as you read the Bible, read it through the lens of the Gospel. Seek Jesus there, because Jesus told us, that this is about me. Find him there and be renewed in your strength and be renewed in your struggle against the devil. And as you do that, you will see that God's word, which is a powerful thing, it's a life-given thing, this gospel that comes into your life, it actually does literally change you and transform you. And you will find some amazing thing happening in your life where you will start acting differently, you start feeling differently, you start saying things differently. You will love people you thought you couldn't love before. You will have patience that you didn't know you had because the Holy Spirit will take that word and will implant it in you and then it will grow and it will change you to the point that that change will even be visible to others. I'll finish with this story. I love, I love this story. I don't know exactly where it comes from. I know the book it comes from, but I don't know how it happened exactly. But it's a wonderful story 
to see how the gospel can transform us, how this truth from God's word becomes our truth, it's become subjective to us, and it actually changes how we are and who we are. So B.B. Wardfield was an 1800s theologian, Presbyterian theologian, and he wrote this little essay on the value of the shorter Westminster Catechism. So you may know the Westminster Catechism. There's the longer version. Most of us don't get through it, so we go to the shorter one, and some of us memorize it, and we teach our children. Typically, catechisms are used for kids to kind of raise them up in the faith. Some of you are using New City Catechism, for example. In our church, it's a great resource. I'm not saying so much about this catechism or being catechized at all in general. I'm talking about how the doctrines of Christ, how the truth of the gospel penetrates you. And sometimes it happens through the catechism process. So Warfield tells a story about the gospel truth and transforming a person. He says, what is the indelible mark of the shorter catechism? We have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer in the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar uproar, that when he had passed, he turned to look back at him only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without, without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the beginning of the shorter catechism. Ah, said he, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. (laughs) Why, that was just what I was thinking of you, said the other man. What a cool story. Two people find themselves in chaos, and they identify each other as gospel people. I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your very looks. What would it be like? I'm sure that's probably even happened with you. I mean, that's happened with me, where I would just come across a person, and I would think, ah, they're probably a Christian. (laughs) they got to believe in the gospel. I remember two ladies that were on the bus when we lived in Chicago, and they took Evie to school, and they were just so happy that eventually I just asked them, do you believe in Jesus? Because you seem to be so happy. And they said, yes, we believe in Jesus, and that is why we're so happy. Sometimes it comes across like that, obviously. And my question to you, and I'll leave you with this, somebody who knows you, would they say that you're a gospel person by the way you live your life, by the way you speak, by the way you carry yourself? Has that objective truth of the gospel, has it penetrated so deeply in your bones that it has transformed who you are and you have become a person who has fastened on the belt of truth and is ready to withstand the devil's lies.